0: Revelation 7. You know, um, in 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, show yourself a workman in the word of God, rightly dividing the word of truth that you wouldn't be ashamed. So as much as we love to take the Bible and just devotionally let it warm our soul, and we all love that, God would say, great, do that, But also, as you're loving me with all your heart, I also want you to love me with your, what? Your mind. And then he says in Jeremiah 3.15, I'm gonna raise up shepherds after my own heart who will teach the sheep with knowledge and understanding. Knowledge being the data of God's word. The understanding being explaining that word application of the word. But interesting enough, the word wisdom is left out. When you look at the Proverbs, there's the three things. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding in that order. But yet when the Lord says it, wisdom, he says, it's gonna come to you individually, personally, by the Holy Spirit, how you are to apply God's word to your life. And so, Often when people will come up, they'll say, man, when you shared that tonight, and, and I'm listening, listening, and going, wow, that is neat, and I did not say that. <laughs> but that is from the teaching, from the understanding, God's Holy Spirit spoke to you. That rhema word, how it speaks to your life, and that also ministers to me. So rather than trying to be the Holy Spirit, which I can't be, I just teach the data Give up practical explanation and application and God's spirit then begins to speak to the hearts. You know, the interesting thing about choirs, you break a choir into four parts, but did you know the human ear actually hears five parts? There's a harmonic that the other parts create and some have said, great men of science and of music have said, It's the sound of the angel singing with us. But it is a scientific thing, the harmonic the sound makes. In the same way, when the word of God is taken with the mind and taken with the heart, there is that extra sound we hear, those who have the Holy Spirit living in them. And that's the Holy Spirit speaking Uh, into our hearts. And again, in 1 Corinthians 2, it says the natural mind, it can't understand these things. It seems foolish to them. But to those who have the spirit of God, we can appraise all things. And so as we're diving into the book of Revelation, we're studying prophecy, which is as sure as history. So if you would, as we're studying through the Old Testament, right now we're in 2 Samuel on Sunday nights, and we're looking how David was living and acting and talking and doing, and and some of those things were beautiful and wonderful and obedient, and some of those things were downright sinful, and as sinful as you can go. There is not a sin deeper than what David committed as God's anointed, as the man after God's own heart is doing all his will, he's also stumbling horribly. And what we do is we observe God dealing with an obedient king, and we see God observe we observe God dealing with a disobedient king. And what do we learn? We learn the nature of God. We learn how he thinks and how he deals with people and what he hates and what he really, really hates and what he loves and what he really, really loves. And as we look at him and observe him, we get to know his heart and his mind. The whole idea, guys, is that we can have a relationship with God. The whole idea is he's a higher power and we don't need to attribute any more characteristics to him other than that. That's anathema in the eyes of God. Jesus came and he made it abundantly clear. I call you friends because <laughs> you're my friend. And a friend doesn't hold anything back and I don't hold anything back. What I'm doing with you guys is what a friend does with a friend. And, and then John turns it around in 1 John and says, that what we've seen and heard and touched I'm telling you, he says in the first few verses of 1 John, we have no advantage on you. If you were able to be plopped in time and sit around the campfires with us and be there on the front row of Jesus' teachings and be next to him when the healings are happening and be there in private conversations on the Mount of Transfigurations, I am telling you now, because the Holy Spirit lives in you and declares all things that Jesus is declaring, that the intimacy that we had with Jesus while he was on earth was really minimal compared to what we have with him now in spirit. And so the idea when the rapture comes and, or we die and we go to be with the Lord, we don't go over and, you know, Gabriel says, hey, let me introduce you to Jesus. Uh, Brian, Jesus, Jesus, Brian, uh, let me tell you a about Jesus. You know, five foot 11, brown hair, looks like a surfer, you know whatever. Uh, it 's not going to be an introduction. We 're going to have known each other and known each other deeply and passionately. and we 've known him for hopefully many, many decades as a Christian. And our knowledge of him grows deeper and deeper and deeper. And, you know, I can compare that with having known my wife for almost 30 years coming this June as marriage and three years before that. And, you know, I often just say, I don't know anything about her. You know, as soon as I get down a couple of things, she changes. And, uh, she, you know, but also, people are complicated. And what's in their soul and what's in their feelings and their minds haven't been revealed but only to a a certain degree. But yet, if I could grab her spirit and put it in my spirit, man, there would be a great advantage if my spirit could speak to her spirit with another language other than our human language. And this is what God has done. He's infinite, I understand. He's not present with us. All those things seem like it's impossible for us to know him intimately. This is why he's put his spirit into us. And I might add in John 17, he says that we are in him as the father and the son are in each other in a perfect unity. Can't be explained. Mystical, but yet, Incredibly relevant because we can know him. And so now, as we're coming to a unique period of time on earth, we get to learn things about Jesus that are unique from all the rest of the Bible. It's important we get it right. Matter of fact, he says it more than once. If you add to or take away even a letter of this book, all the damnation that God said he was going to put upon those that are going to hell, he's gonna put them all on you times a million. Because if anything changes a little bit, it's like a a plane going from San Diego to Hawaii and you change the instrument panel just a little bit, you'll be off by about 3,000 miles and killing everybody out in the middle of the ocean. The fact is, is to hit that little dot of Hawaii in the ocean, you gotta be exactly right. In the same way, as we're interpreting Revelation, we've gotta get the heart and the mind of God correct. And the fact's correct, or it changes who he is and his attitude, his character, his nature, the way he looks at sin, the way he looks at mankind, the way he's dealing with man on the planet. It changes everything, and it may seem, Small little things to you, but it will take that little bit of instrument panel and instead of heading and landing in Hawaii, will be 3,000 miles away from Hawaii, uh, crashing into the Pacific Ocean. And so um, it's exciting because if you've been studying the Bible all the way through, you start getting that pattern. Yep, that's what he would say. Yep, that's the way he would act. I see it, the way he dealt with Adam and Eve and Joseph and the way he de- dealt with Abraham and now David and now Daniel and Jeremiah and children of Israel here and there, I'm, I'm getting the pattern and then Jesus shows up. Yep, that's right, that's consistent. That's the way it is. And then all of a sudden there's seven years on this planet that cannot be compared with any other time period in history. Man is unique. The devil is unique in this time period and God deals with man uniquely. But it tells us so much about him that we never would have known had we not experienced that tribulation period. But guess what? <laughs> We're not gonna experience a tribulation period. We're gonna be raptured out of here. So therefore, we, he wants us to know him as much as we can know him. So what does he do? He says, I'm gonna tell you about myself in that seven-year tribulation period. So right now, before that ever comes... And of course, for the apostles back in the Bible and the first generation church, it was 2,000 years yet to come before the rapture. But yet they could know fully Jesus, uh, even in this unique, heavenly, earthly view of what he's doing. So I hope you're as excited as I am. We made it through... um, Chapter one, the revelation of Jesus. and chapter two and three, the the revelation of the seven churches. Uh, Boy, the Lord just really spoke some deep things to us there. And then in chapters four and five, a couple of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Seeing Jesus upon the throne and all of us worshiping before him and how much we learned there. Relevant chapters as we continue to go through the book. We're gonna see those scenes again and again. And then last week, we were in chapter six, and we were told about seven seals that would open the scroll. Seal one was a white horse. You would first think, Jesus. But then you go on to look at it. No, it was the false Jesus, the Antichrist, the counterfeit Messiah. And then we saw there uh, the second seal, The fiery red horse, the Antichrist taking peace away from the earth and causing men to kill one another. And then we saw the third seal, the black horse of famine, scarcity, inflation. And then the fourth seal, the pale horse, that of death itself being brought. And then we saw the fifth seal, the martyrs that were slain in that tribulation period. And then the sixth seal, as the chapter ends up, the sixth seal. And you had finished that chapter with the sixth seal, and you're saying, all right, so tonight, chapter seven, we're gonna see the seventh seal. Because remember, sevens are consistent through the book of Revelation, right? We've already seen the seven angels and the seven uh various aspects of Jesus' nature with the seven lampstands and so forth. And we're also gonna see the seven seals here and then the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. Seven, the number of completion, right? And eight starts that, you know, if you have a, a musical scale, it goes one through seven and then eight starts that scale over again into infinity, both directions. So we get to chapter seven, the seventh seal, and guess what? No seventh seal, Matter of fact, there's sort of this parentheses. Chapter seven is like, oh, before we tell you about the seventh seal, we've got some important pieces of data for you to know. Hold on. Now, if you've been studying through the Bible, you realize this is a perfectly acceptable way in the Eastern mindset, and the Jewish mindset of communicating. Uh, especially as you go through the prophets, you, you see this. They they don't, you know, we in the Western culture, we have this nice little chronological order, everything laid out. Uh, no, no, they they don't do that. They, they You gotta read it closely because they'll jump back and forth and it's like this information, you're like, uh, doesn't that go way back between those verses back in, you know, chapter two of whatever? Oh yeah, it does, okay. And why didn't you just add that in chapter two? well that wasn't the way god designed it so what we have here in chapter 7 is sort of a, a parenthesis saying hey between chapter 6 giving us the 6th seal and then chapter 8 is going to give us the 7th seal but in chapter 7 i need you to know about a few things i need you to know about 144,000 john eats a book <laughs> he measures a temple Introduces us to two witnesses. Introduces us to the bowls of wrath. We'll start seeing seven of those. And we'll see unclean spirits that prompt Armageddon. So six different things we're going to see between, in this parenthesis, 144,000, John Eden of the book, the measuring of the temple, the introduction to two witnesses, the bowls of wrath, and the unclean spirits that prompt the battle of Armageddon. And so we start here in verse one tonight, after these things, a familiar phrase that we've been Looking at here, remember all the way back to chapter four, metatauta after the church age. So in essence, he's saying chapter seven here doesn't just go between the first or the sixth and the seventh sill. It really has nothing to do with that. This is just information that you need to go and and we, we could put it right back in chapter four if we wanted. Uh, metatauta information you need to know before we start heading in to the seven year tribulation period. And he says there, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And, you know, I just might make a note how people foolishly trying to make the Bible look inaccurate will say, right here, the Bible's incorrect. It says four corners. We know there's not corners. You know, it's ridiculous because we do that same stuff today. We today would say four corners, the, a newspaper trying to be very factual say the sun rises and the sun sets? We know that's not true, but we still say it. Why? Because it works with observation. To this day, if you take a compass, you look at the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west, right? The four corners on a compass. It, it's not saying this is incorrect. This is just another way of communicating. There's all kinds of different ways of communicating that that are acceptable and understood. And if you said, well, how many people are at the concert? I said, a billion people. Oh, there's Brian. Okay, a billion people. One-fifth of the population of the earth was not only in San Diego, but they all fit at the Coliseum. That's what I hate about you, Brian. You're such a liar. You know, you didn't, even for an instant, believe I was giving you a real number. I was giving you an exaggerated number to give you a sense of how crowded it was. Because I could have said, well, 88,924 people. Oh, then you'd start asking the question, is that a good number? I mean, how many can fit in there? How many tickets were sold? You see, there might have been 120,000 tickets sold. Or there might have been 70,000 tickets sold. I mean, so that 88,000 number really doesn't tell you anything unless you knew everything there is to know about the stadium. But I can just get rid of all of those factual things by saying it was just jam-packed, right? And it's a perfect way of expressing. And just like Jesus said, it'd be better for you to cut off your right hand and pluck out your right eye than to stumble one of the little brethren. Oh, okay, Jesus wants us to cut people's hands off. No one ever thought that except crazy people. There's all kinds of, of ways of communicating. Uh, with, uh, there's a whole list of them. I won't go through them. But again, this is one that's very acceptable to our times as well. The four corners of the earth. And then holding the four winds of the earth. Now, when we go through here and have gone through the Bible, often wind brings about a great destruction. And so pretty much as we've studied through the Bible, if there's a great wind, typically there's some things that are going to be run, broke, hurt. And so that's the the concept. And so this wind, however, should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on the trees. Now, as we go on, we're going to see when the wind does blow and when the various bowls of wrath and plagues and so forth comes, it is the sea is is destroyed, the life in that, and then, a of a course, upon the land, the earth, and then the trees, which, again, we know so much uh, affects the oxygen-nitrogen balance of the earth, and if there's not enough uh, of the various... Oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide being given off from plant and animal, uh, we die. It's a it's a very temperamental balance, and so the temperamental balance between the sea and the earth and vegetation. And in verse two, and I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom, listen, it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, however, do not harm the earth and the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So before that happens, there's going to be a period of time that those who are gonna get saved in the tribulation period are saved. <laughs> now it's, it's so funny again, you know, we, we see there in Peter where people are, are, one of the signs that we know we're close to the end times are people are saying, I'm tired of hearing you say the rapture, the rapture, rapture, is coming around the corner. Any day the Lord's gonna come back at you. Since the beginning of time, we're tired of you saying this you know, it's one of the signs of the times, people saying, you've always been saying the Lord's coming back, and he still hasn't come back. And there, the Lord tells us, it's because of his love and mercy, he hasn't come back, because he's waiting for just one more soul (laughs) to be touched and to be saved. And so, as we see the nature of the Lord, it will get ridiculous. Ridiculous. Every time before the Lord brings judgment, he waits and waits and waits and waits and waits and waits until like Lot, you know, he's getting ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and he's got angels that literally got to grab him by the neck and drag him out of town and they're on the hillside and he says, don't even look back and they almost get singed as Sodom and Gomorrah gets destroyed. But we see the Lord just waiting a ridiculous amount of time before he finally takes the handful of righteous people out of Sodom and Gomorrah before he destroys it. Um, And this is what we see in a continuous basis. And so this is the way it's gonna be. And interesting in the tribulation period, there's seven years of tribulation period, and here it appears that, hey, the angel's been given permission to touch the earth and the sea and the trees, and he's right on time. Beep, 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 beep. You know, his uh, number uh, five uh, Apple phone was, uh, you know, put, put in there, the timer, and he's heading on down to, to do his destruction. And he hears another voice uh, delay that instruction. What? You can't delay my instruction? Man, this has been planned for a couple billion years. Nope, hold off. I don't want you to destroy it yet. Why? Because, ah, there's still some more. (laughs) And what's going to happen before this happens is they're going to be sealed uh, on the foreheads. Now, again, it's interesting. You all know later about the sealing of the Antichrist on the back of the hand or the forehead with 666. And you say, well, where does he get that idea? He's always mimicking the Lord. Satan is jealous. He believes he should be the Son of God. He believes that he should be lifted up as the Lord Jesus. He's not. So he comes and he mimics it all, even this. But the Lord puts, of course, not a sill of 666 and you can't eat or drink or buy or sell. You're oppressed. And if you don't have that, it's not the point. It's a loving, caring mark. It's interesting as we go through the scriptures. Um, we discover this. For example, uh, one to be a bondservant. Now again, in, in the Lord making the law, a lot of the laws he did not want to make, but because of the stubbornness of the Jews, out of concession, he allowed them for a time until finally the way he built it, it just would self-destruct. One of those was Slavery. So the way the Lord built slavery, only certain people could own slaves, but the treatment of the slaves was like raising your favorite son. (laughs) And it it was a six-year period. At the end of the six years, they left as a very wealthy person. They basically had six years of wages plus whatever... um, they had throughout those six years. And and typically, they would have a lot of wealth. Well, they got to share in a part of that. So when the slave left and went back to his home uh, plot of land, he was a wealthy man. And so often what happened, though, is the slave would say, I wanted to do this the rest of my life. It wasn't some evil, oppressive slavery like we saw in our country, and unfortunately, like we see Uh, with hundreds of millions of people around the planet. Today, slavery is a higher number than it's ever been in the world today. And there are slavery here in America today. It's underground. It's horrific. And it's oppressive. It's right from the pit of hell. But often here, the guy would say, hey, it's the sixth year. You're free. Here's your bunch of money and your seed and here's some uh, cows and here's some... uh, Machinery and, you know, off you go. He could run to the doorpost of the house. He could hold on to it. And he would say, I love my master. I love being here. And I'm taking my demand of being a slave forever. (laughs) And there they would take an owl, put a hole in his ear and put an earring on him and it became a great status in the community that this guy chose to be a slave forever because of this wonderful relationship he has. They love each other like a father to a son. It's a wonderful environment. He wants to remain living in it. He wants his kids raised in it. He, he doesn't want it to end. And... uh in some of the commentaries of the Jews, it got to the place that when there was somebody, typically the way somebody became a slave, is say they were a drunk or they beat their wives or whatever, and the community elders would get together and say, we can't have you live in this way. So you become a slave or we kill you. But this can't go on. Men, Remember, they didn't have jails or prisons. Um, they would have a judge on the guy's matter and as soon as the judgment was done usually in a day it was taken care of so therefore they would have a group of elders that could own slaves and they would give them a slave but it got so crazy that many of these elders had so many permanent slaves (laughs) that it it just it just became too much it was like a big giant summer camp you know nobody wanted the camp to end and so it was hard to find elders to take slaves because, again, they would always want to stay uh, forever. And so, again, um, this was a sill, if you would. But, again, it was them putting it upon themselves. And what is that seal that we saw? Again, it wasn't some evil mark, here, 666, do this or you die, do this or you're going to be oppressed. It was, I want it done to me. And I'm doing it so everybody knows that my master is wonderful and loving and caring and I want to be a slave unto him forever. The other thing we see is in Exodus chapter 13 verse nine. And here it says, he shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead. The law of the Lord may be in your mouth. And this was a tassel that the Jews have to this day that go down the end of their garment, onto their hand, and on their forehead. And then also, uh, there's a box. Now, some of the Jewish groups say that you've got to wear it all the time. Some of you just say you've got to wear it when you pray. You go to Israel today to the welling wall, and they'll grab and put the leather box, different styles, different sizes, different shapes, Uh, Jesus talks about it when the Pharisees, he says, you make these giant phylacteries is what they call them. And some of them make them huge, you know, like the size of a basketball. And some of them make them little tiny things. But in it would be simply the verses here uh, that would be found out in Numbers chapter six, saying, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and teach them to your children. But um, they would have them when they pray, typically sometimes they wore them all the time as a sign. And then in Ezekiel chapter nine, here he tells them to protect them. He wanted a seal for protection, which is interesting because this is what we have in Revelation. It was a sign that was put on their forehead that would protect them from the wrath that would be coming from God to all the planet. But with this seal, they would be immune to the wrath of God. And what's really interesting about this in Ezekiel chapter nine, verse four, it says this. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within them. Now make a note of that word mark because in the Hebrew lettering, It is the letter tau. It would look like our small T. So on the forehead of all these people who hated the abominations of the wicked, they had basically a permanent tattoo of a small T on their forehead. What would that look like to us in the New Testament? A cross. Isn't that interesting? I know when I pray for people and anoint them with oil, uh, I've just not been told or anything. I just always do put the symbol of the cross on their head because I know it's through the cross that healing comes. But a pretty neat thing here. And so I, I think that's probably what it was, the symbol of the cross on their forehead. We do see this seal again as protection and, and making it plain. Matter of fact, Jesus had a seal of his father. In John chapter six, Verse 27, it says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. The Father upon the Son, Jesus. And then on all us believers, we've all been sealed. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21 and 22, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God referring to the Father, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So right now, all of you are sealed, not on your forehead, not on your hand, but by God's Spirit living in us. And remember, at this time period, when the king wanted to seal something, he had a ring. And depending on what they wanted, it could be metal, usually wax. They would, whether it's a document or it could be a, on a tree, saying a piece of property. Remember when Jesus was in the tomb, they sealed the tomb that if anybody broke it and opened that tomb, that they would be put to death because it was sealed by the king's insignia not to be opened. And so this, it says as a guarantee. What's the guarantee? It's the down payment. Actually, what it actually is, we have it again. The layaway plan. I was surprised to see that come back in this great recession, but if you know, seen that now, you can go to Walmart or wherever and you say, hey, I want to buy that toaster for $28, but all I have is $8. And here's $8, and they will actually take that box and go put it on a shelf somewhere with your name on it, and they put on there that you paid $8, you owe $20. And you can come back in a week and give them another $10 and come back another week, give them another $10 and take it away. Hey, have you seen that's back? Uh, and of course, that was back in the days uh, you know, when you really did need to put it away because they only had eight of them and they weren't gonna get anymore <laughs> and you didn't want it to go away and you didn't have all the money. Um, that's the layaway plan. The Holy Spirit is in us as a guarantee or on the layaway plan. When the rapture comes, we'll be caught up to be with him. I'm not gonna read them, but also make a note in Ephesians 1.13 and Ephesians 4.30. We'll be starting Ephesians here just another couple of weeks. But in both of those places also, it talks about how we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Well, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 40, verse 4 now. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the, what? Tribes of the children of who? Israel were sealed. It's amazing to me people come up and say, the 144,000 is this, that, 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 that. When I don't see how I can be clearer. 144,000 Israelis. Well, 13,000 from this tribe and 6,000 from that tribe. And nope, 12 tribes, 12,000 from each. 12 times 12 is 144,000. Now, we do find interesting things each time we look at genealogies. We hear God's heart on what is there and what is not there. Now, the first thing that should jump out you, and I I might mention, guys, as you study the Bible, there's 20 different lists of the children of Israel as tribes, and they're all different. (laughs) And each time they tell you stuff, for example, in this one, this is the only time ever that Judah is listed first. And it's giving you priority, preeminence. And of course, Judah is the kingly tribe. Judah is the tribe of Jesus, King David. And they're naming it in this tribulation period as the ruling tribe now, the kingly tribe. Here's another interesting thing we see. Manasseh. And then, as you go down to the verse 8 there, the tribe of Joseph. Now, if you remember back, the original 12 tribes Levi was taken out because they were the priestly tribe. And God said, I'm not giving them a portion of land. Why were the 12 tribes broken in? Because they could divide up the the land of Israel. But they said to the Levites, we're not giving you land to be farmers because you're gonna be priests. And God is your inheritance. Not property, but God. But they did give them land, not to own, but just to, to utilize outside each of the cities. They could make gardens and so forth. But they were not to own land. And so they were not officially a tribe. Well, you say then there's 12 sons and you just took away one. How did you end up with 12 tribes? Well, remember the end of the book of Genesis? We have a guy by the name of Joseph. Remember his dad gave him the coat of many colors. His brothers eventually sold him as a slave into Egypt and God raised him to power next to Pharaoh himself. And there he had very great wisdom. But we see in the very last chapter, amazing, godly man. And so God gave him two tribes. He had one son by the name of Ephraim and the other son by the name of Manasseh. So when you went through the list, you might go, I don't remember Jacob having a son by the name of Ephraim or Manasseh. He didn't, those were his grandkids. His son was Joseph who was graced by God because of his incredible integrity as having two tribes. But, (laughs) you got some complications that came up down the line. This is why the list keeps changing. After Solomon, because Israel's disobedience, Israel got broken to two nations. One of the nations was called Israel The other, Judah. Israel had 10 tribes. Judah had two, but really one. Judah and Benjamin. But remember, Benjamin really wasn't a tribe anymore. Because back in the book of Judges, Benjamin, the tribe, became like Sodom and Gomorrah. And all of Israel had to go to battle and basically killed off all the men. And God said, all the other of you tribes, give men to these wives to raise up children to their husbands, and nobody wanted to do it. But finally, Judah stepped up, and pretty much only Judah did it. And so Benjamin and Judah sort of became one tribe. And so the tribe of Judah and Benjamin made up the tribe of Judah, and Israel made up the other 10 tribes. But really, out of those 10 tribes, they all began to shrink, except for Ephraim. They actually grew, and as we're studying through right now in Second Samuel, you'll see at times that nation of Israel was actually called the nation of Ephraim, because it was just almost everybody was from the tribe of Ephraim, and the other tribes shrunk. But during that time, guys, so Rehoboam continued ruling in Jerusalem, as king and had the priesthood there in Jerusalem. Jeroboam had the rest of the land outside of Judah. And um, the first year when the holidays came up and everybody who was 20 years old and above was supposed to go to Jerusalem and worship the Lord there as God had commanded, Jeremiah lost his faith and said, oh, no, 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 the people are gonna go there, they're gonna party, they're gonna have a great time, they're gonna worship God there, and they're all gonna wanna move to Judah, saying, hey, we gotta, get, we gotta live next to the temple. And so he quickly said, hey, nobody can go to Jerusalem, but no need, what I'm gonna do for you, and this shows how ignorant he was of God, is I'm gonna build a more convenient location for you to worship God, Not one location, but two. And he built two golden calves on each end of Israel. One of them was in the area of the tribe of Dan. We actually go and when we do our trip of Israel, we actually go and the very location that the the golden calf was there and they worshiped is still there today. And so they became wicked. And so Ephraim and Dan, those two locations, were really the ones that propagated this worship of these golden calves more than any. And thus, here, Ephraim is not mentioned. Dan is not mentioned. Which isn't, again, that unusual because in other genealogies, Dan is left out. Again, because of the wickedness. But one more thing here, guys a couple, very, very interesting is as we look at a couple of verses in the Old Testament, many scholars believe that the Antichrist himself is from the tribe of Dan. Here's why. In the book of Daniel, which has nothing to do with the tribe of Dan, I don't want to confuse you, um, in chapter 11, verse 37, talking about the Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, this imitator of Jesus, it says, he shall regard neither, notice, the God of his fathers. Many believe that's referring to Judaism, to the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, he is a Jew. Nor the desire of women. Some take that as he was a homosexual. Um, others have other ideas of what that means, that, that uh, the expression, the desire of women was that every mother would love a son like that. Nor regard any God, of course, for he shall exalt himself above them all as, as God. And then also in Jeremiah chapter eight, verse 16, another verse referring to the Antichrist, most believe, that the snorting of his horses was heard from Dan. That's where the location And the whole land trembled at the sound of the name of his strong ones and they have come and devoured the land and all that is in it and the city and those who dwell in it. However, I need to make one more point about Dan before we leave. Is that in Ezekiel 48, it actually talks about the thousand year millennial reign that happens after the seven year tribulation period. And it talks about the 12 tribes of Israel again. And guess who's back on the list? Dan. So many speculate that those believers during the tribulation period that are Jews read the very thing you're reading right now. And they go online and they listen to my Bible study. And they're going, man, that Brian is absolutely amazing. I don't know why anybody else is on the internet, but besides that, they get broken over the fact. Man, we're out of all these genealogies. Our forefathers were idolaters. We've been off the list, and here we are now at the end of times, and we're not even counted as one of the 12 tribes of Israel. But yet... In Ezekiel 48, they're back on the list and guess where they're on the list, guys? The top of the list. I think that they repent greatly. And even though they're not one of the 144,000 mentioned, they become significantly powerful people as the 144,000. And they get back on the top of the list for the 1,000-year millennial reign. Well, there's more interesting facts about that, but we're going to go on. So who are who is no, who are, the 144,000? Well, first of all, I want to tell you who they're not. They're not who the J.Ws say. Originally, they said, 144,000 are us JWs, and that's how many of us are going to become J.Ws well. Unfortunately, they passed the 144,000 number so they had to quickly change their theology as they often do in the Watchtower and they changed it to the superior 144,000 of the JWs. So today, when a JW comes to your door, they hand you a piece of uh, a magazine that says, don't you wanna live forever on earth? I look at it going, are you nuts? No. And they're like, oh, well, that was our selling point. Uh, they don't believe there's a hell. They believe that if you're not a JW, you're annihilated. You just keep, keep existing. We've talked about that and how many evils come. How many evils come from not being a hell. You, you can, men will do abominable things. And again, going back, we've talked about this. Uh, Karl Marx and so forth, they, they, they understood. I don't have to destroy religion completely. I just have to destroy people believing in hell. I can get them to do any evil thing we want if they're not gonna have to stand before God or other people and give an account what they did in their body. You can get people to do any evil. But the JWs then said the superior 144,000 are the only ones going to heaven. So if you ask a JW today, so are you gonna go to heaven? No, I will never be one of those great ones. I'll simply live forever on earth but they're very mistaken. Of course, the Mormons have a teaching, and it's guess who? The Mormons. And uh, then there's also what's called the replacement theology. And this is a theology that says, Israel, Jews, doesn't matter at all. God is done with them. Nothing in the Bible that mentions the Jews has anything to the Jews. When you see the Jews, it means the church. So go back and read all the promises to the Jews and it means the church. You gotta understand, guys, God said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants, I will be your God forever. I will be with you forever. The Messiah will come and rule and reign over you forever. You'll see that term many, many times that the promises were to them forever. And of course, if you read Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul makes it clear. He asks the question, so is God done with Israel? Certainly not. He says all Israel will be saved. And so right now we're in a time, and and the epistles say in this family of God, God's tore down the wall between Jews and Gentiles. We're one family. In this family, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. We're one family together. Some Jews want to worship in a Jewish way as Christians. God bless them. Paul said, Peter, that's your ministry. Me, as a Gentile, we're going to worship as Gentiles. But to both of us, praise the Lord, um, we don't try to keep the law to make us righteous. So who are these 144,000? Number one, we find in Revelation, matter of fact, chapter 7 and chapter 14 talk about this 144,000, but In chapter 14, verse 1, it says this. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb standing on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their forehead. Again, it makes it abundantly clear these are Jews. In chapter 7, here, verse 4, and in chapter 14, verse 1, they're Jews you say, well, I thought they lost their identity. Yeah, in 70 AD, when Jerusalem was destroyed, all records, who was of what tribe was destroyed, which is important, because if you go back to Ezra, and they were wanting to rebuild the temple, before they could be a part of that, they had to prove by the papers that had been held onto from Moses' day, they had to prove their genealogy And if they couldn't, they were gone. And so now you ask the question, when could Jesus the Messiah could have come? It had to be before 70 AD because those papers are destroyed. Now you say, well, how can they prove they're one of the 144,000 now? Well, one, God's putting a seal on them. So God could remedy that really quick. But it is interesting with the science now of DNA. They're actually now going and finding the ancient tombs that they know are people, are of various uh, lineage, and they're actually now able to prove to some degree, especially of the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Judah because of the tombs of the priests and of the kingly priests, and they can take that DNA against Jews today and prove it. And of course, that's just the science we have now. I, I don't know how God's going to do it, but it's not a strain on God's brain. God's not up there going, Oh, I told him twelve thousand of each tribe. I shouldn't have never said that. How can I prove that? Oh, this is so hard. I don't think that's going on with God. Okay? But he said he, he's going to do it. And so we already see DNA, and we can see how that can be proved now. And that's relatively new science. Secondly. The 144,000 are of a specific tribal identity. Number three, this 144,000 are protected and triumph through the period of God's wrath. Number four, I'm not going to read it because of time's sake, but Revelation 14 4, they are celibate. They're not defiled with women. Number five, they are the beginning of a greater harvest. They're the first fruits of a new harvest, evangelistic time in the Revelation or in the Tribulation period. Again, in Revelation 14 4. Number six, these guys are radical evangelists throughout the world. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 31, a passage that we normally read in the day of Pentecost. Remember that? where it says the young men and the old men prophesy, have dreams, and so forth. But notice this, in, in, in Joel chapter two, verse 28, in verse 31, it goes on to say, this power of God's spirit's gonna fall upon them, and I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth and the blood and fire and columns of smoke, which is all tribulation period stuff that we're gonna discover as we read Revelation The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So this description that Peter preaches and says, hey, I'm telling you about the day of Pentecost. As we read on and Peter quotes this. Peter actually quotes what we know is in the tribulation period as a time period when the gifts of the spirit will stop. And that is at the end of the tribulation period before the Lord comes at the end of seven years, the same way in matthew twenty four fourteen this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all nations, and what then the end shall come, so again, these radical witnesses throughout the world, empowered by God's spirit, having prophecies and dreams, uh, radical miracles going on, and then the end comes and then Number seven, these guys are radical people of integrity and faithfulness. In Revelation 14:5 it says, "And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God." So these guys are like radically holy, pure, celibate, empowered, prophet, evangelist guys. Mighty Elijahs, Jeremiahs, John the Baptist type. I picture them with their bag and off they go traveling and and of course the Antichrist trying to kill them because they don't have the mark 666 on them. The bulls of God's wrath are pouring upon the earth destroying the land and the sea and fish and animals and there's not much going around but they don't have to have much to eat. The Lord's sustaining them supernaturally. And um, again, I, I'd love to spend time in Romans 11 going through, showing that they're a fulfillment of God's prophecy, how all Israel shall be saved. Uh, and this is what they're doing going throughout the world. Gentiles, though what we know, can be saved, but the real target is Jews. But I would say to you, if your plan is, oh, I'm gonna get saved in the tribulation period, You need to stay with us through this study. You do not want to be in the tribulation period and saying, yeah, I'm going to be a Christian during the tribulation period. Not a good idea. But going back to chapter 7, verse 9, as we finish up here quickly, once again, after these things, metatauta, so again, let you know, this information you need to know at the beginning of the tribulation period. Look and behold, he's telling John Uh, the apostle, look, behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues. Sound familiar? It's almost exact from chapter four and five. What did we see there? We saw the church. We saw the believers that have been raptured. And now he's seeing basically the same exact thing. I, I might make note again here, guys, the uniqueness of what God created on earth was perfect. Inside, Mama and Papa, Adam and Eve, was all eyeballs and ears and colors of skins and types of hair. We all come from Adam and Eve. And of all the different shapes and colors and sizes, and of course, at the, after the Tower of Babel, all the different languages, all the different cultures all the unique things about cultures that's all from god and it stays for eternity we don't all get to heaven and look like the same nationality no all the nationalities are stay the same so if you look like somebody from new guinea here on earth you're going to look like that in heaven That's the cool thing. All those languages, it's beautiful to God. All the millions of people are gonna be worshiping God just like on the day of Pentecost. This guy in one language, that guy in another language and they'll all understand each other speaking wonderful, glorious things to God. And uh, so, you know, if you're concerned whether there's gonna be enough Mexican food in heaven, you're okay guys. All us white guys will be over eating with the Mexicans just like here because we want that good carne asada. And uh, notice here, though, I, I stopped after tongues for a reason. All the peoples and tongues, notice here, they are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with, here's what you see, white robes, palm branches in their hands, that's different, crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So you have this very similar look, but they're not sitting on the throne. Remember in Revelation 3.21, to him who overcomes the time period before the rapture, I will grant to What? sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The promise to the church, the promise to those who get through the hard times before the rapture and they are raptured up and we're at the seven year marriage supper of the lamb. We don't stand before the throne. We are with Jesus We're sitting on his lap and pulling on his beard, making fish fade with his lips and just having a good time on the throne. But this group of people that are saved out of the tribulation period, they don't sit on the throne, they stand. And then also we go on to see some other differences. In verse 11, all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God exactly like chapters four and five, saying amen, blessing, glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. And in verse 13, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? Now John was probably thinking, oh, this is a repeat of what we saw earlier. He wasn't asking the question. And so he, in verse 14, he said to him, well, sir, you know. (laughs) You know I was thinking it was the same group, but obviously it's not the same group. So you tell me. And he said to me, these are the ones who come, what? Out of the tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Guys, why is this important? Because there are people that have a mid-trip position and a post trib position who tell you up front that we as Christians are gonna go through part, if not all, of the tribulation period. Now guys, I don't have time to go through all the verses that we've been through, but remember in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, each time when he talks about the rapture, he says, comfort one another with these words. If the rapture is coming in the middle of the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation, it would not be a comforting thought to us. Quite the opposite. It would be, and by the way, build a storm shelter, start you know, getting a lot of guns, and you're probably already doing that, and uh, start you know, getting a lot of water and food and you know, just your Y2K supplies, hang on to that. And uh, that would be the message, but the message is nothing like that. Why? Because we're not gonna be apart. But these guys, it's different for them because they're not like the group in chapter four and five. They look similar, but it's a different group. This group is saved out of the tribulation period. Remember in Revelation 3, verse 10, because you have kept my command to preserve, I also keep you from the hour of trial. Another way of saying the tribulation period which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God did not appoint us for wrath. God did not appoint us to wrath. And as you read this, it makes it clear, this is God's wrath upon the earth, but attain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in chapter seven, verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God. And notice here, what? They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger more, nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them in, in the heat for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them in living fountain of waters and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Notice this, the difference in Revelation chapter five, verse 10. Us who overcome before the rapture, what's the promise of Jesus? I have made us and has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall what reign on the earth. This group of people stand before the throne, and they serve Him day and night. Guys, that's still wonderful, but it's of a lesser degree. Jesus said, store up treasure in heaven. So even amongst those who are raptured, there's a variation of what it's gonna be like for us in heaven. And Jesus says, store up treasure in heaven. You don't wanna be poor in heaven. You don't wanna be judged by God and only end up with a foundation and no stones. But also, Jesus said in Matthew 6, when he talks about the area of giving, store up treasure in heaven. For all of us, it's gonna be wonderful but the tribulation period, tough thing, tough thing. But David had it right in Psalm 27, four. One thing I've desired of the Lord, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. To the ones that overcome beforehand, those who are saved out of the tribulation, will all have that desire met, being with the Lord forever and ever. But there is a difference between those, those who are saved before the tribulation. We go to the marriage supper of the lamb and the focus is Jesus and heaven. Those saved out of the tribulation period are thankful that they're not in the heat. They're not in the pain. They're not in the suffering. They're not crying anymore. And Jesus spends a time, as we go on, we're gonna see this. He spends a time with these tribulation saints, comforting them wiping the tears from their eyes, comforting them from the trauma they experienced. And then they wanted to be included, and he says, not yet, you got to wait. Here's your white robe, but you got to wait. And they have a period of time waiting until the end of the seven years is up before they get to partake of heaven as we know it. Interesting stuff. Lord, we just come before you now as we just Go line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, adding this up. Learning of you, learning of your heart, learning of your mind. And as we have this little parenthesis tonight before we go to sill number seven, we take all of these things and as Mary, the mother of Jesus according to the flesh, it says she hid them in her heart. We just treasure these in our heart right now as we are getting that picture painted of this book that you said you would bless us if we study it because you want us to know all these things about you, of how you're thinking, of how you handle it. Search our hearts right now. If you're here tonight and we study the seven churches in Revelation and each time Jesus said, Who, whoever has ears, let him hear. And he would say to the, you gotta Overcome. It's not an easy fight. It's a battle. But if you get through that battle and there's all kinds of promises that are given to us, the church, that are not given to the tribulation saints, you wouldn't want the tribulation on your worst enemy. Besides that, there's so many things of intimacy. of the Lord given us a name that no one else knows, writing our name upon a rock, getting us to sit upon the throne, letting us rule and reign with him side by side. The list is great and many as you read through those churches that we read in the first part of Revelation. And in essence, the Lord says with all passions, quickly, zealously, repent, I stand at the door and knock. Let me come in now. Talking to Christians where he had been pushed off the throne of your life and even outside the door. We know that in the last days before the rapture, there's gonna be a great falling away. Many are gonna listen to doctrines of demons and they're gonna end up not being ready. Five of the virgins have oil in their lamps and ready and five, they're believers, but there's no oil in their lamps and they come knocking on the door. He said, nope, too late. The rapture comes in a moment in a twinkling of an eye and there's not rapture 10 minutes later and an hour later and a day later. You're ready in that instance or you're not. First John two twenty-eight. he said, abide in him so when he comes, you don't shrink away in shame at his appearing. There's going to be many people that know much and they're going to realize millions, maybe billions of people off the earth in a second. They're going to hear the news, see it with their own eyes and they're going to realize, Jesus said, it's going to come as a snare upon all those who are left upon the earth. And right now, as we're here tonight, God is warning you, crying out to you. He may be coming back tonight. This may be your last warning. You may not be alive tomorrow morning. There's gonna be people all over San Diego having heart attacks tonight and I don't wish that upon any of you. I'm just stating a fact. When God gives a warning like this, we don't wanna let it just easily pass by us. We wanna wrestle with it and say, Lord, is it me? Search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way of everlasting life. Search me, cleanse me, heal me. And if that's you, just say, Lord, it's me. That's all you gotta say. The thief on the cross said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Just confess you're a sinner, that's all. He'll take it from there. He'll be faithful and righteous and forgive you from your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness just right now. Right now. You can get baptized here at the beginning of March. (laughs) Just right now, cry out, God, I'm a sinner. God, forgive me. Through the death of the cross and your resurrection, I know that your blood can wash me white as snow. Cleanse me. And here's the important part, guys. Yield now. I yield to you from this second now forward. It's your will be done. I'm gonna take your written word and I'm gonna read it and Lord, I ask by your Holy Spirit, speak into my life and I will obey it. I will jump no matter how high you say. I will bow no matter how low. I will do whatever it is by your grace and by the power of your spirit, loving my enemy <laughs> or going into the world and making disciples, whatever it is you want, Lord. Yes, always yes to you, Jesus, from this day forward. If you can do that, then you are born again. God's spirit will come into your life and make you a new creature. And if you've done that right now, afterwards tonight we have a Bible we wanna give you and talk to you for a couple minutes and just rejoice with you. The Bible says that all the angels in heaven are rejoicing when one such person repents. Thank you again for your word and washing us in it, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful night in Jesus. Bye-bye.